Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Correa. I work here at Wire still. <laughs> I'm joined by my co-host today, Mike Dunward, CEO of Wire. Mike, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. I am, of course, joined by Alex Wern, co-founder and CEO of Aurora Dow. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And thank you so much for coming to our recording studio while you're in town. You're typically based uh, in Chicago, am I right? That's exactly right. I've been out here the last couple of weeks <clears throat> meeting with a couple of uh, the coworkers that we have here, um, doing a couple of conferences as well. So appreciate you guys having me in your space. Yeah. Um, just, just out of curiosity, how is the crypto scene in Chicago different from the scene in San Francisco? Perhaps you pr- spent some time in New York. I'd love to see what's so special about uh, that geography. So I just moved back to Chicago uh, kind of midsummer, and also was getting married around that time. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind and I'm just jumping back into the crypto scene itself. Uh, it's probably a little more trading focused, just given the roots of Chicago. You've got a lot of the big uh, kind of OTC firms there, Cumberland, Jump Capital, a lot of the trading desks. Uh, but you got a bunch of other projects coming out of there as well. There's some guys from Enigma there. Uh, that we've met with a couple times, did a podcast with them a few weeks ago. Um, so it's it's a pretty good scene. Yep. Um, before we talk about Aurora Dow and IDEX, uh, why don't why don't you give the audience uh, a little bit of history on yourself, uh, your background, how you got into crypto, what interested you in about crypto? Absolutely. So in undergrad, I studied economics and chemistry, kind of an odd combination. I thought I wanted to be a doctor or a lab researcher realized a little bit too late I probably should have been a software engineer that was about three or four years into my career where I was working for a marketing analytics firm out in the Bay Area Uh, quickly kind of gravitated towards product focused roles spent time at IBM Adobe and eventually Amazon doing product management roles which I found was a good blend of kind of my technical understanding of what's capable from an engineering perspective and understanding the business or product use case what we were trying to create and build for customers Uh, From a crypto perspective, I first started following Bitcoin in probably 2011, 2012. Given my economics training, it kind of goes against a lot of what you're taught in the sense that it's not legal tender. It's not managed by a central bank. uh, There's a deflationary supply schedule, a lot of things that are kind of antithesis to uh, current economic theory. So I, I admittedly dismissed it early on before realizing that actually that's those same properties are what makes it so fascinating. Um, from kind of a game theoretical perspective. I really jumped in head first when Ethereum was released. Uh, Bitcoin showed that digital scarcity could be a thing. Ethereum showed that you could now have programmatic functionality around those digital assets. Kind of just this construct of if this, then that. Like what could you create just with that kind of simple mindset in terms of value transfer in a digital native world? Um, so we actually had a couple our first product was actually a stable coin built on Ethereum. It was called Decentralized Capital. It was a fiat-backed stable coin in like early 2016 before stable coins were all the rage. Um, got a little bit of traction there, but eventually pivoted to IDEX and had some insights into kind of what properties of decentralized exchanges were most important to customers and how to make one that is both non-custodial but has a great user experience. Uh, and that's really what we've been focused on since. I made that mistake uh, in my early education as well. I, I studied biomedical engineering, and I should have just, you know, definitely been a CS major <laughs> in hindsight. Uh, but I totally get that. 
And uh, just to uh, touch on what you, the economic components of, of Bitcoin, I think in every college in the US, they just propagate like Keynesian economics. So when you take a look at Bitcoin and it's clearly like an Austrian economic uh, paradigm, it's very easy to just dismiss. Um, and and economics professors don't have like a really good reason of why they you know dismiss Austrian economics. Uh, it's just that they like to focus on, on Keynesian. I feel like there's some sort of conspiracy going on there. Anyways, um, would love to dive a little bit deeper <laughs> into Aurora and specifically IDEX. Um, I think the center plate for today's discussion will be IDEX, which is the first product uh, from Aurora. Uh, but before we jump into IDEX, what is Aurora and what is Aurora's mission? So we look at how can we kind of recreate the financial stack, if you will, using this technology to make something that's more open, transparent, and inclusive. And it begins with IDEX in the form of our decentralized or hybrid decentralized exchange. And the goal there is really to have kind of an open model from a custody perspective. So if you look at centralized exchanges, in order to trade on those platforms, the very first step is giving them control of your cryptocurrency. So there's many end users that that doesn't work for. They're interested in self-custody. They like this idea of this kind of self-sovereign financial system. But there's also entities and institutions that will also want to control that part of the process, that custody piece either because they need to from like a legal perspective, maybe they need qualified custodians for some regulatory reasons, they might have something unique to their jurisdiction that's required, or just because it's the way they maintain their relationship with the customer. They keep that AUM and they're able to keep that part of the value chain. So we kind of envision the future of these of crypto exchanges is gonna to start to look more like traditional finance where custody solutions start to be separated from the exchange and then you got to figure out, okay, how do these custody solutions all trade and interact with one another? And that's really what we're focused on creating here uh, with IDEX. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there, do you envision that there will be a suite of products outside of uh, IDEX that, that are tied all into that same mission? Yes. Yeah, so the, 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 the first idea is to build out this exchange. And then the next parts behind it, as I mentioned, we had done an early version of a fiat-backed stablecoin, which is necessary i think it's something that the industry is uh it's going to be valuable but where it gets more interesting is kind of re-envisioning reimagining how currencies work um and so one of the things we kind of uh stumbled upon if you will is, is some of the history of uh fiat-backed currencies or central bank managed currencies and and there was a long period of time where there was actually private currencies as well where individual banks could issue their own currency and a lot of the challenges had to do with their inability to diversify the risk of their loans in their portfolio they're often regionally restricted such that whenever there were regional kind of economic issues there would be runs on those banks mm -hmm. but there's no reason that a sound money can't be created by a private institution that it has to be managed by nation states so we kind of looked at how can you have a currency for the decentralized economy if you will um, and the idea is to have something that's backed by and imbued with value by the users and the businesses that actually use it and accept it so just like the u.s dollar 
the strength of the U.S. dollar is a function of the economy and the government that give it its legal tender status, right? So all these businesses need to pay taxes in it. All these banks that give out loans need to get it as a form of repayment. So how can you kind of reimagine that for the decentralized world where you have a bunch of decentralized applications that are backing, essentially imbuing a currency with value of, with, as, as a quote unquote legal tender for that customers are able to pay it and get goods and services for, from those, those vendors. And then any income that's generated from lending this asset goes back proportional to those who contribute to this economy. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a reimagining of uh, this this currency that's allowed to fluctuate with and meet supply and demand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I can see that uh, for bootstrapping an economy, you need all those uh, different components, like basically a stable coin and some sort of credit facility. And of course, uh, an exchange to- Liquidity is everything. Li yeah. Like if you look at like the very first point that came to market in crypto in general, it's always liquidity. Everyone just wants to start with liquidity because once you have liquidity, then you've got like fee and pricing that becomes actual actually competitive. If you don't have depth, you've got nothing. Uh, so I think everyone's, it makes complete sense and IDEX is a beast. So yep. good call. <laughs> <laughs> no, liquidity is certainly the first product you need to roll out, right? Yeah. And, if, and on top of that liquidity, you can build a whole stack of an array of different products. Yep. So that, that definitely makes uh, sense to me. And IDEX has gone, uh, like Mike mentioned, um, a ton of traction, right? Just great product market fit uh, right away. So it makes sense to uh, focus on that as well. Um, I'd like to take the listener to uh, through the architecture uh, behind IDEX. Um, from what I can glean online, there's some centralized components, there's some decentralized components. It's something you actually dubbed pragmatic decentralization. So uh, why don't we start? Why don't we start with the macro here? How do you think about decentralization? What does that mean to you? And then we can get into how IDEX is a representation of that. We've come to believe that decentralization is actually just it's a bad word to use to describe things in the space. It's, it's not black or white. It's not something decentralized or something centralized. It's all a spectrum. We would argue there's nothing that's, there's no such thing as pure decentralization, right? That's not, like, there's no technical definition of it. Things are either more or less decentralized. It's not right? a destination, basically. You don't become decentralized. You just become more decentralized. Yeah. Exactly. It was interesting people interpreting some of the stuff on like the SEC's perspective on Bitcoin and Ethereum, like, oh, sufficiently decentralized. It's like, what does that mean? Like you're a seven decentralized like there's no measurement you know there's no scale <laughs> <laughs> to say this is enough decentralized right so it's definitely this kind of fluid concept and it's it's a spectrum right so on the exchange side you have fully centralized exchanges where you deposit your cryptocurrency into their platform what goes on until you withdraw is entirely within their own system right it's entirely proprietary you have no visibility and you're basically at the end just saying i've made all these trades now i want my funds back from this system right a more decentralized version is something where all of the core trading functions are actually managed via the blockchain network so in the case of ethereum this is actually how the decentralized exchange ideas first came to market the idea was you would have a smart contract that allowed you to recreate both the order book as well as the trade execution and settlement process on, fully on the blockchain. So when you created an order, you actually sent it to the Ethereum network for mining. And that order appeared on the blockchain, so to speak, for anyone in the world to see that order, come along as a taker and fill it. 
But there are some challenges with that approach, primarily the fact that every time you want to create an order, you're paying a gas price, a gas cost to the network, and you're waiting for the network to confirm it before it appears on this order book. So it's more decentralized, but the UX is frustrating for your average user. So that's where we saw the first steps were to take the order book off chain. The idea is you pre-sign a transaction. That transaction is not hosted on the blockchain, but it could be a website. It could, you could send it to a friend via Skype. The, that person on the other side completes their side of the trade, kind of countersize, signs it as the taker, and then submits it to the network for processing. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we ended up with Ether Delta and things like Zero X. Those were uh, slightly different nuanced versions, but fundamentally the same idea that this order can be shared anywhere and anyone can take it and submit it to the network. Is this too different from the uh, matcher model relayers that are built on top of zero X liquidity? Yeah. And so what you're referring to is the idea that if anyone can take an order from the order books, you're going to have issues where multiple users are trying to fill the same order at once, simply because it's the best order available in the market. And if you're waiting on the blockchain to confirm whether or not that order has been completed or is still available, you're going to have what's called a race condition and then trade collisions where multiple people try to fill the same order. Someone's successful, whoever gets there first or pays more gas, and then the other trades will fail. And it's not until it hits the contract that it actually fails. And so it has this weird property where as the uh, user base grows and as interest grows, you actually have more collisions because you're more likely to have people try to get the same order and have it fail on trades. So like at its peak, Ether Delta had as many as 20% of the trades were failing. Damn. <laughs> I had no idea it was that high. That's insane. Mm. What about front running as well? You can like, it becomes much simpler to front run in scenarios like that as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You can watch for when trades are submitted to the blockchain. Bump your gas up. Bump your gas up and front yep. run. And we actually found that while that is a threat, it's it's more the unintentional collisions that were more problematic from a UX perspective. Yeah. And so what you were just mentioning, Thomas, is the matching model from the zero X perspective, where the relayer actually puts themselves as the taker on both sides of the trade, mm-hmm. such that they can actually control that process and say these trades have been matched. Um, now these these other trades are the next highest ones on the book. It, it's really like how do you uh, coordinate that process? If you're relying on the blockchain for settlement, but settlement takes a few minutes to actually confirm whether or not it got through. Okay. I I think I follow. So, um, most of the settlement is still uh, happening on the blockchain. All of the order matching is happening on IDEX servers. Yeah. So the one unique twist that we had is we, we call it a three signature model. So if you think of of other decentralized exchanges, the maker signs their side the taker signs their side and then submits it to the network themselves. So anyone can call that trade function in the contract and have that trade execute. The issue though, being that if anyone can call it, there's no coordination of what's still available and what's kind of pending. So we have a third signature is required one from our exchange to call the trade function in the contract. So you and I still have to sign with our private keys, but then the, the exchange is the one responsible for dispatching it to the network for settlement. What that means is that we can kind of pre-verify the transaction, confirm that the balances are there, that the signatures are valid, and update the to reflect the trade as if it has completed already in kind of our off-chain database. So from the user's perspective, everything happens in real time. You you grab this trade from the order books, the order book the is immediately updated, and your balance actually updates to reflect the pending settlement on the blockchain. 
So we have kind of this real-time off-chain layer that is always dispatching to the network so that the contract stays in sync with what's going on off-chain. Mm -hmm. Basically, it just makes no, like they're the collision governor, basically. Exactly like, right. You guys you. can't collide together because we've co-signed and they're already like ready to go to the blockchain. So basically it's like all the things, like if you look at GDAX or whatever it is, firing on all cylinders and it's like GDAX taking whatever they did in the past 10 minutes and just stamping it on chain like repeatedly sort of thing. Yep. Um, but with a three signature model and obviously not giving all your assets over to somewhere like GDAX. I follow. Um, in that spectrum of decentralization that you were laying out earlier, uh, I think there is a plan to uh, decentralize even the order matching uh, functionality for IDEX, right? And this is where the, the token uh, comes into play. Can you give the audience an overview of uh, the token system uh, in Aurora? Sure, certainly. So because we're using a smart contract at its, at its core, there's things that we can do to kind of open up the operations of the platform, if you will, right? So the custody and settlement is transparent. Uh, it's visible on chain, something that, as Mike was just saying, like a centralized exchange, the only thing that's on chain is the final withdrawals. Everything that happens in between in terms of trading and what balances moved where is just within their system. So we've got plans to take the centralized components of IDEX and decentralize those over time. So the idea being that it won't be another blockchain because then you introduce a lot of the same latency and consensus problems, but you can use other methods of distributing control and opening up visibility such that you can gain the benefits of kind of the transparency that comes from using a smart contract at its core without having to sacrifice on the UX benefits that we think are so critical to getting wider adoption. And so the first thing that we've done is we've opened up the trade history process. So um, if you think about this, this actually launched, uh, I guess we're recording this like mid January. So this launched January 11th, I believe. Um, and we're already up to 300 nodes that are running this process. And the idea is that before the launch of this staking network, when you connected to the website and you went to a particular market, the trade history came from a server that we're running. It's from our own internal database. But that same information is actually, it's just a replica of what's in the contract on the network. So anyone can verify that what we're showing in terms of trade history actually did happen in the contract. And we've taken it one step further so that nodes are running a piece of software that downloads the history from the contract and then serves it up to those who connect through the exchange so that instead of getting the history from our database, they're getting it from this network of nodes. So over time, kind of slowly peeling back those centralized layers and putting them on a more decentralized architecture, uh, really embracing what we can do with this smart contract at its core that centralized competitors cannot. Mm -hmm. So this Aura token um, is, is state uh, to run Aura nodes and they're responsible for verification of trade history at this point. That's the only computation that they're responsible for? That's exactly right. And if you think about, there's kind of two other fundamental pieces of the architecture. Um, Assume that the front end, you can either do a web hosted version or you could download it on a client. You know, we can make that open source and more transparent. Really the other functions are the order book and then that process of dispatching trades to the network. So the question then becomes, how can you decentralize those elements as well without just recreating another blockchain that has the same challenges uh, as fully on-chain versions of a decentralized exchange? Is there a way to earn uh, Aura in the first place before you 
uh, want to become a node participant or do you just buy that on the open market? Yeah, great question. So we are distributing the Aura token to those who trade on the platform. There's a finite amount and it's gonna go out over the next few years. And it's it's borrowing from a couple of different things that we've seen that have, that have worked. So it's kind of a more sustainable version of some of the transaction mining um, that some of the other exchanges in, in particular in Asia were doing in the sense that there's a finite number and it's not like a one-to-one -one fee rebate. And there's actually a process that you're doing to help the exchange operate. Um, we kind of in, were inspired by there's uh, the exchange ICE, which is a traditional financial exchange mm -hmm. that did an equity model for early participants, early liquidity providers. They gave them equity if they met certain conditions. The goal being to bring that network together before and, and bootstrap the liquidity before there's millions of customers using it. Right. And so this is kind of the same idea. You can actually earn this token by trading on the platform. The more you trade, the more of it you're able to earn and the more of a role you're able to have in the future operations and earnings of the exchange. So would a typical node operator be uh, a big market maker on IDEX? Um, I, I see I see the advantage. Uh, what, what are the advantages of running the node other than access to the trade history, right? If you're a market maker and you also want to run a node, do you have any sort of access to information or latency uh, uh, benefits that you have that you can use to your advantage? Not at the moment. We're always, I mean, I think the notion of like staking networks and tokens, like it's evolving so quickly that we're definitely trying to remain flexible in terms of the design, right? Like we've got this end goal in mind, which is something that's more open, more transparent, and allows others to participate because we believe that's one of the unique really selling points of tokens and token economics is like if you have in particular something that's driven by a network and, and a two-sided network such as a trading place that's it's really important that you have both buyers and sellers there at the same time right you know something other similar would be like airbnb or uber and and the guys from airbnb talked about like how cool it would be if they could give equity to those who listed apartments on Airbnb early on. That was actually like something they explored, but they got held up on doing because of all the legal just requirements and challenges around issuing equity to someone who's lending out a resource. So in this case, we're trying to look at, okay, how can we actually bring them into the operations? It's not a security, it's not ownership, it's the right to participate in running this network. For doing so, you can actually earn a percentage of the fees from the network. And you can actually lend some of your computing power to make it more robust, more decentralized, more transparent. I think it's awesome. I think it's, I mean, in, in general, that design is you know, crowdsourcing sort of the integrity behind IDEX, obviously, because IDEX, even though they are trusted in that they have been delivering the same, you know, the same uh, sort of like trade history to everyone efficiently. Now you've just like, don't have to trust us we've distributed there's a hundred different people a thousand whatever it becomes um and you sort of get to you know uh crowdsource evangelism as well because these people are going to want to push liquidity to idex so um i think it's a good call thank you yeah i think it's a fantastic model uh, as well what what do the current economics look like for running a node how uh profitable is it uh you know what kind of return can you get essentially thomas is looking at new jobs <laughs> so, I'm, I'm trying to not have a job yeah. <laughs> yeah right so we released an article with like a 
simple Google spreadsheet calculator. We're going to make something a little prettier here soon, but it's got all the basic inputs you need. And you can think it's basically a function of what is your stake size? What is the total amount that's being staked? That represents kind of your percentage. And then also a function of uptime. So if your node's constantly going offline, you're not getting credited for work you're not doing. Uh, beyond that, it's a function of the revenue from the exchange and then the price of the tokens at any one time. Um, the last we ran the numbers, it was like a 13, 14% annual yield. Oh, yeah, I've, I'm just bringing it up now. So input data, node uptime, 99%, personal or stake, 100K, total or stake, 31. I'm going to get server VPS fees monthly, $5. Holy shit. I'm about to quit my job, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a fantastic awesome. return. Um, but you would have to hold Aura token as well and find some mechanism to hedge it out uh, there. So because if, if Aura token were to drop more than 13%, then you wouldn't be in the money. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's assuming you don't hold any Aura today, and that's part of the kind of your you know investment decision, right? Is, okay, if I'm going to do this operation, there's this upfront fixed cost in terms of this staking capital, right, that I need to participate. Um, and that's where we're really focused on how can we find people that both are aligned with this vision and want to earn the tokens by actually making the exchange grow itself. And so, you know, these assumptions are predicated on volume not growing at all, right? And that's where it really gets exciting when you start to play with the numbers some and say, okay, what if this grows 10x from here, which, uh, you know, we're down as long with the, the overall market itself, but, you know, we've been there in the past, right? So mm -hmm. you start thinking about, okay, as adoption starts to grow again, um, as more people start to flock to this particular platform, you can start to play with the numbers and see that, you know, being in there early can make a lot of sense. I think that's great. Um, I, I think, think those Amazon credits that I just got issued for 100K are going somewhere pretty quickly now. <laughs> I'm literally on the calculator. I'll come back with the answer. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's fantastic. And I, I think the user experience for staking is going to uh, become smoother this year, right? So right now, the experience is not great. You have to be basically a developer to figure it out. Uh, you have to run some sort of server space and then run some script on your computer. Um, you'll have to, you know, have a lot of aura as well, and then f uh, park it in a wallet. I don't know the exact flow actually, actually, but I imagine that, uh, you could be working with third party staking companies to introduce aura as one of the tokens that they support. They figure out all the user experience and everything on the back end, and you can, you can essentially productize this. That's exactly right. So there's a couple of expansions, right? It's work with the, you know, like what they call them, like masternode products or kind of, you know, staking services where there's a couple of advantages. You, they, one, will run it for you so you don't have to deal with, um, you know, the setup process, which we've, we've done a really good job at making it as simple to use. You know, one of the things before we rolled it out, we wanted to make sure that people on the team who have no command line experience could spin up something, copy paste the instructions and get it working. That was kind of our benchmark, right? For when we felt this was ready to go to market. So we've got that now. And then we're working to make improvements to make it even easier. I think the end goal is an actual piece of software that's open source that you can just like run and, and it's off to the races. Um, we're also looking at making it work on a Raspberry Pi. We think it'd be really fun to make branded boxes, branded staking boxes that you can I, just like plug into the internet. I, I was actually gonna ask about that. Because really cool. I think Casa did that with Lightning. Um, yeah. I mean, we've got a couple floating around the office. Um, I thought that was such an awesome way to promote it. Like it was a really good design. I think you, I think that's a big win. It's a really easy win if you can get there. 
Um, where's the best lens of truth for IDEX 24 hour volume? I'm still calculating this stuff. Yeah, so coin market cap is close. Um, one of the things we see is not all of the assets are captured there. So this is on the uh, ever growing product to do list, but to add a, a, a uh, visibility into the true 24 hour volume somewhere on the website. Nice. Mm -hmm. um, this is a good time as any to talk about interesting upcoming features for IDEX. Uh, what's on the product product roadmap? Uh, what's what are you really excited about in 2019 for IDEX specifically? So we've got a couple of different initiatives, and it's really about taking this core design that works really well right now on Ethereum smart contracts and with Ethereum tokens, and expanding it into new asset classes or new blockchains itself. So on the asset class side, there's an initiative called Wrapped Bitcoin, which you're probably familiar with. The idea is to BitGo will be the custodian of the Bitcoin. And then there's like a federated network of Ethereum projects that are working to issue the wrapped Bitcoin or the Ethereum token version. So this is going to be a way to bring a representation of Bitcoin onto the Ethereum network, which I think it's going to be provided there's sufficient liquidity going to be pretty successful uh, for a case study. Just look at the success of Tether, even though it's arguably one of the uh, most constantly derided assets out there in the crypto space. It works, it's a representation of dollars and people are happy to use it. Um, so this is gonna be interesting, not only for us as a decentralized exchange, also for dApps, the ability to represent Bitcoin within their kind of uh, value flow. Also, we think it could take off among centralized exchanges as a faster arbitrage method. So if you think about settlement times between centralized exchanges, if you're trying to move Bitcoin from one exchange to another to take advantage of a mispricing, you can actually do this faster with a wrapped Bitcoin or a version that's represented on the Ethereum blockchain due to its faster settlement times. I was saying, I was saying, so I, I do have my reservations about the implementation, but I think wrapped Bitcoin, like the premise of Bitcoin on Ethereum will be humongous for those reasons. The, the inter interoperability amongst exchanges, insanely faster, but um, also exchanges implementing it they're already running like, you know, 90% of the pairs are already running on the ERC-20 standard. For them to integrate this requires, you know, no, no node maintenance, all that kind of stuff that comes with running that whole chain. Speaks to the same, uh, sp same wallet address syntax, all that kind of stuff. I think it's such an easy slide in. Um, I just really, really hope it's done right. Uh, because, yeah, I'm... I hope it doesn't bring down the house basically. Yeah, right. I think the end goal that everybody wants to see is, I, I don't like the word trustless. I think it should be like trust minimized or something. It also sounds something that's untrustworthy, but we'll use it for the podcast. Trustless system <laughs> to bring assets from other blockchains all together on one blockchain, right? So there's a couple of different cross-chain initiatives in, because we, we explored really heavily atomic swaps and mm. in particular cross-chain atomic swaps, right? The idea of, swapping ETH for Bitcoin without having it be held in, in some third wallet, third party wallet. And it works, but the UX is terrible. It, t it takes, you got to set up these channels. It takes hours for settlement. It's never something you could build a trading experience around. But if you have a representation of the other asset on the same blockchain as the smart contract, in this case, wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum, you can start to do a, a trading experience. That's something that traders will actually want to use. Outside of wrapped Bitcoin, um, are you thinking about introducing the whole kit and caboodle of stable coins that are out there onto the platform as uh, underlying pair? Yeah, we we um, 
we kind of go back and forth on this on like, what's the best way to roll that out. And I don't know if you guys have any insights, right? Is it just throw everything out there and let the market take care of it? We also want to make sure that there's enough liquidity to generate interest early on. So uh, with wrap Bitcoin in particular, we're going to be starting with like Bitcoin, ETH and stablecoin pairs, as well as a few kind of key Ethereum based assets, and then look to grow that number of markets over time as the liquidity starts to build in the market. Mm -hmm. You were touching on this earlier, uh, just the, you know, tremendous traction that, uh, IDEX has had so far. Can you give us a overview of the statistics? Like what is your, uh, daily traded volume? Like how many users are on IDEX right now? Um, yeah, if you can start out with that, that would be uh, fantastic. Happy to do so. So, um, we were the largest DEX and DAP for pretty much all of 2018. So we had 80% more transactions than CryptoKitties five times the number of trades as all zero X relayers combined. Um, in terms of volume, we did, uh, over 1.6 billion of volume of in 2018. Whoa. <laughs> oh, nice. Whoa. My, my prediction for the, uh, like we've got all these decks predictions in pricing and uh, in how much volume they do for the year, you know, the post-it notes. Yep. That's actually spot on, but, um, yeah, anyway, it was different decks, but <laughs> <laughs> for this year, for this year. Got it. Yeah. So that has come down some with the broader market, right? I think, you know, we kind of look at the fact that we've got Ethereum and Ethereum tokens in some way. We're kind of a leveraged version of, of market interest in the sense that, um, you know, we're unable to trade things like Bitcoin, Litecoin, uh, EOS, Stellar, all those other call them like flagship crypto assets. So that's why we're really excited about initiatives like wrapped Bitcoin, which will help us be less correlated with the overall interest in Ethereum. Cause we can see that our volume pretty much moves. It almost in lockstep with the Ethereum price itself. Yeah. And I mean, Bitcoin's responsible for roughly like 60% of the daily traded volume. So once like that gets to you, you're already only trading for 40% of the market. So now you've got 60% more to play with. Yep, that's exactly right. Sick. IDEX and Ether Delta are the only DEXs, in my view, that have achieved very meaningful traction. I, I would say zero X relayers are up there as well. Uh, this is opposed to you know many DEX plays that are backed by top VCs and cheered on by the industry leaders. Um, you yourself have, I, I believe, bootstrapped most of this uh, business. How how and why have you succeeded while the market darlings have not had similar success? I think there's a couple of things. I think the biggest one is the UX. So one of the best things we can hear from a customer is that they didn't know they were trading on a decentralized exchange. Um, either Delta made amazing strides in terms of pushing the boundaries of what was possible, but the UX, I guess, left a lot to be desired. Um, so from that perspective, users had been trained to think that DEXs had to be frustrating and a lot of friction, right? So that was like one of the things we wanted to show was that once you get over this hurdle of the private key is your account, um, that was a, kind of an interesting thing we dealt with early on, right? Where uh, it, it's like, we, we call it bring your own account, where if you log into any other website ever, basically, you create a username and password, you link your email address, and if you lose that password, you have an account recovery system, right? And so we'd have people coming to IDEX and say like, oh, I made an account on IDEX. Um, how do I transfer from my, my Ether wallet to my IDEX wallet? And we're like, whoa, 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 like the, what you made on IDEX is just another wallet. There, there's no reason you can't just plug in your existing wallet into the IDEX infrastructure. So that was kind of a, just a, a, a switch that had to flip in users' minds of like, this is a different type of dealing with 
uh, kind of registration and uh, account signup than in other uh, other products that I've ever used. But once you get them over that hurdle, the rest of the experience, the goal was to have it look and feel like the exchanges that they're already familiar with, which I think went a long way in terms of gaining that adoption. Um, one of the other things we did, so we have 24 hour live support on our website. Um, so anyone who comes, if they're having issues with those steps in particular, it's most common, like hooking up the wallet and making deposits, there's support staff right there that they can, that they can ask a question and get an immediate answer, which, you know, as far as not losing users in that funnel, that's obviously a critical step, right? They're on the site. They want to use it. They just need a little help. Um, the origins of the support staff is pretty fun. So we had a telegram channel early on that we had like all the community working in and I was on the West coast, other founder on the East coast. We tried to not have a gap in coverage overnight. So I'd like stay up as late as I could. He'd get up as early as he could, but inevitably there was like some coverage gaps. And we had uh, one guy in particular from Vietnam who was starting to just like plug in, answer questions, like basically take over the overnight support role, just like out of, you know, being a, being a good guy. So we spoke with him and said, Hey, you're doing a great job. You understand our architecture. How would you like to be part of the support team? And so it was all promoted from within, from people in the community that, saw the product, understood it and wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I think, uh, t that's just a really awesome story. Right. And uh, you find that often with, uh, a lot of successful projects like maker, for instance, you would think that there are an army of developers even in-house, but I was just, I was looking on like their team the other day and it, it kind of spotty, uh, you know, in terms of the amount of developers that are on there, that's because they get the community to do basically like free work for them. Right. Yeah. That, well, the, the community is most likely holding a token that's going to capture value. Yep. But I mean, like, you know, in the same sense with me running a node, I'm like, hell yeah, I'm getting my tokens and, you know, that's my, that's what I'm getting back. But it's sort of like you incentivizing this evangelism, AKA shilling which is what i do around the office very frequently um but i mean like like even talking about maker they've just had maker scan which is now almost like a more popular cdp creation tool from instadap and they're like unrelated to them uh you know they're not on the maker team or something like that so yeah i, I think that's fantastic um so i one could argue that your go-to-market strategy is all already successful but are there demographics or markets that you want uh, or wish to be uh, more saturated with IDEX users? Uh, what's your what's the remnant of your go-to-market strategy? Couple of thoughts there. So we've uh, we need to do a better job breaking into, in particular, Asia. Like we just started being able to translate the site. Um, we want to start building up a community there. Uh, Korea, in particular, has been uh, kind of the uh, market that has bucked the broader trend where interest is still really high. There's still a lot of projects launching. So, um, we need to do a better job building up community and presence there. Um, kind of on top of that building on top of that. So we to date have been mostly just retail end user focused. And I think that's a function of, um, kind of the nature of the way you, you operate with the exchange, right? You bring a wallet or a private key to use on the platform. And most commonly, that's going to be individuals that are using it. But where we really see kind of the decentralized exchange space, and in particular, we're really focused on that non-custodial piece. And the real value we see in this is that you can have kind of an open custody platform type approach, if you will, where I, the end user, if I want to use a ledger, great. I can interface with a large institution that has their own custody solution. 
and also wants to trade on this more open network. And we can all trade in the same liquidity pool without introducing any additional counterparty risk. So that's why I think where we see the real power of this. I think that you're going to see over time centralized exchanges, which today are custody, trade and settlement all in one start to those pieces start to separate. And once you have custody providers, the question is how do they communicate and trade with one another? And it's either recreate the current system, have like a messaging layer where mm. you, you broadcast your intent to trade, it's matched and it goes to settlement, but that introduces all the counterparty risk and challenges of the, tr the current system. Or you do something that is kind of blockchain forward, uses the technology itself to actually have those trades be essentially escrowed by a smart contract and, and go to settlement immediately. So that's really an area that I think it's, it's both the market needs to get there in terms of you know, the, the institutions being comfortable with this infrastructure and also our infrastructure itself, we need to continue refining it and making it uh, meet the needs and, and have the same capabilities of what they're used to. It's like an IDEX below the IDEX, basically. So if IDEX is doing that for all the end users, then like these custody solutions under the hood, they're all mix and matching amongst each other and doing a daily stamp basically of the net settlement at the end of the day or something like that instead of printing everything mm. in real time yeah so one of the things we think is that uh there's a lot of users interested in self-custody right like i think every exchange hack that happens that user base grows but it's i i don't know if it'll ever be the majority and that's just either it's you know, at least at the moment it's a pretty highly technical process right it's it's something that users can mess up some users just prefer to have an entity manage that for them. They like right? pointing the finger. Exactly. I, people really do. I, I'm a really big believer of this. I agree with what you said, but like people love that there's someone else to blame kind of thing. Like uh, there's always someone that you can not feel this whole weight on your shoulders. Like when people are like, hey, what should I do with my keys? I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know, man. Like read online and stuff. Here's like really good practices, but you don't want to feel this whole like, you're relying on me kind of thing. Um, right. Yeah. Point uh, the finger. A hundred percent. And so I think what we, where we really see this going is that it's, it's not that everyone's going to adopt hardware wallets and, and private key you know, ownership, but how can you make it so that the institutions that customers are working with, um, they can actually connect to those and share the same kind of infrastructure or liquidity that those who want that self-custody option. Um, basically, how do you how do you give flexibility of custody solutions so that you have the guy on the left who wants to own his own private key and the guy on the right who just wants to call up a broker and say, make this trade, how they can all come together on the same platform, right? And if you have centralized exchanges today, which are essentially just siloed custody solutions and, and you trade within the custody solution, it's never going to get to the to the level that you can get if you can connect them all together. Mm -hmm. Um the list of tokens that uh, are traded on IDEX are growing every day. How do you decide which tokens to list on IDEX? So as you mentioned earlier, we're a bootstrap product. So we try not to be uh, just looking at, you know, call it like kind of the flashy metrics of, of a project, right? Because um, I think often like the size of a token sale or something like that, that can in some ways be a, a negative signal. It means that doesn't necessarily mean that they've got a great product or a great team. Uh, it means that they were good at marketing it. So, you know, what we're really looking for is for each project, we actually Skype with the team. We want to get to know them a little bit, what they're trying to build. And we're looking for honest founders, uh, as well as a community that wants the project to be listed. And it's 
definitely a bit tricky, right? Like, um, you know, kind of in line with this more open ethos, we don't want to be the ones that are the arbiter of what can or cannot be on the platform. But unfortunately, there's an element of trust that comes with something being listed. And no matter how often we say it, customers don't always look in depth at the project as much as, as we would like them to. So I think there's a couple of things we're doing on that front. You know, one of the ideas is maybe over time, this becomes something that is uh, kind of more decentralized, right? And we use the tokens that we have as a form of signaling or voting of, of what projects should be on the platform. Um, the other thing is just bringing more transparency. So there's a couple of partners we're, we're working with to bring uh, call it like reports or um, kind of audits or information about projects and make it readily available within the exchange so that people can see if they're about to, you know, if they'd see what this token is, like they can learn more about it, learn more about the team. Uh, one of those great examples is Masari. We've joined the Masari registry and I, I think what they're doing is great. It's really just about uh, kind of self-regulation, if you will, um, being more transparent with both uh, the token supply and how that's going to be distributed, uh, as well as communication. And then, you know, if you think about trying to, you, you see a project, you're curious, you, you like the tagline of what they're trying to build. Like, how do you go about finding information? Like you might read the white paper, but it might be nine months outdated. You go to their Twitter, it doesn't always have the most relevant information. So I definitely think it's a challenge that, um, is going to be solved, but it's, it's going to look a lot like, you know, kind of some of the traditional financial reporting does today where you can go to a site and start to read the high level and then dig in in more detail and really get a whole picture of what the project is about. Does the, do, and so you go through that curation process. Uh, do you ever get incentives for people that are like, please list our token, please list our token. Like, I mean, Binance was printing money from that. Um, and how was it when you interviewed CZ to see if he was able to list BNB on IDEX? <laughs> <laughs> Please, Alex, let me list it. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, he was not begging to be listed. Uh, so I should say that that's a process we instituted probably like six months ago. So uh, BNB slipped in before we had more stringent rules. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Lucky CZ. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, uh, sorry, what was your original question? <laughs> I don't even know now. <laughs> no, I was talking about, have you guys ever had cases where you're uh, on yes, the fence yes, yes. and then, or there were two really great people, uh, or like great teams and one of them ponied up some cash or they were incentivizing. Do you see that kind of the carrot get waved in front of you guys? We get offers, but we don't accept any fees for listing. I think that's again, just, uh, we want to list a project based on its merits. Yep. Um, and again, we came from these kind of bootstrapped origins and we don't want to have a fee be a gateway or a, a blocking for a good project to get on board. I think that's good. And I think as like, as you were saying, like the more you sort of crack open that, how we came to our decision and you really become sort of providing this transparent guys, this is what we went through. Here was the really good stuff. People are going to really kind of rally behind that. And then I'm going to start putting in my vote with my aura token that I'm earning while I'm mining it on my hundred thousand dollar free Amazon credits. Sorry, Thomas, continue. <laughs> Do you want to give us some of those credits, please? We've uh, got quite the host. Get your own. The, the no. yeah. uh, let's, let's talk about bootstrapping liquidity. Uh, we've already talked about Aurora and how, uh, and Aurora's mission. And of course, IDEX is the first product that Aurora has, uh, has rolled out and, and the product itself is, is just liquidity. Right. And to create liquidity on the system, you need to create an ecosystem that's vibrant with market makers and market takers. And there's a lot of ways to uh, to skin that cat. Right. How do you think about incentivizing uh, both sides of that coin? 
So a big part of this is the token model, right? I mentioned that it's distributed to those who trade on the platform. So if you learn about IDEX, about our broader vision and kind of buy into this idea of how we're approaching the decentralization of the remaining components, then I think that's a really compelling message to get people to bring liquidity to the platform. And we've seen that really resonate with market makers who say, yeah, you know, I, I continue to run this because I'm, I'm interested in accumulating aura and participating in that staking network. The other thing is it's kind of part of our design. You need to make it easy for market makers to, at a affordable, low cost, um, provide that liquidity. You need to make it something that they're willing to do as a business. And so a concrete example of that is we talked about fully on-chain uh, decentralized exchanges. So if you're having to pay a gas cost every time you want to create or cancel an order, it's going to be really limiting for market makers who want to constantly be adjusting the bid ask that's out there based on movement on other platforms, right? So if the price of an asset moves, they need to be able to update what they've put out there. And if they're having to pay to cancel or pay to put an order on the books, it's going to be pretty limiting in terms of their ability to offer that liquidity. So that's a lot of it is a design that by minimizing the amount of times we touch the network and pay for those resources, we're able to actually just, they can just port a strategy that works on another centralized exchange over to IDEX because there's no cost incurred until it actually gets to that settlement piece. So the placing and canceling of orders can work just like it does elsewhere. How do you, how do you think that plays into wash trading and all that kind of stuff? If they don't have to pay gas fees and like what, what is the, the inhibitor for someone to just like turn up the volume for you guys? Yeah, so there's still gas fees on the actual execution of the trade. So it's not free, so yep. to speak, right? Yep. Just to go back and forth. And then we actually monitor and look for that within the exchange, right? So awesome. we've got a system of tools that can basically identify patterns where, okay, these two accounts, you know, the, the first step is don't allow self-trading, right? There's some exchanges where literally the same account can buy the order that they placed. I mean, that's yeah. just really egregious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's no need. You never need to do that, right? I can't think of a valid use case for buying your own order. Um, but then on, but then I'm trying to it. tell Thomas for like the past six months. I don't know why he does it. <laughs> He's trying to hit my KPIs. Man. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Whatever yeah. it takes. Huh? There's a product manager out there who, who's buying his own order. I can see that. Um, outside of that though, there's no, you know, it doesn't add value to the system, right? So we're, we're actively looking for that. Uh, we've got systems and tools to monitor and, and track that. So. Yep. Um, how do you plan on further productizing that liquidity? Uh, one, I, uh, you know, not to, uh, not to elevate zero X too much, but I think they've done a really great job at distributing, uh, this product called zero X instant, right? It's a, it's a buy widget. Think of it as a stripe for, um, um, decentralized. I think it's more liquidity. like a shape shift, isn't it? Th that's my yeah. mental model. Yeah. yeah. Is, uh, it's, it's embedded in a site. You send the, you know, whatever you're selling and receive back whatever you're buying and it, and it uses liquidity from any number of zero X relayers to execute it. That's right. Um, well, it, it would, it would use the, the network, uh, liquidity, which is basically just radar relay right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, you're right. It, it abstracts away all of the, uh, gas and the zero X fees that you'd need to, uh, you'd need to, um, um, include to participate in that trade. And it's just one click and it's a way of really like taking liquidity from the Xerox ecosystem, right? Their liquidity pool, which is one component, of course, of bootstrapping liquidity. Um, and they've also done a really great job at uh, providing APIs for, for traders to build, uh, you know, market-making bots on top of them. How do you plan on um, 
productizing liquidity with further technology, uh, further technology that's outputted by IDEX. Couple thoughts there. So I think we've started to see that uh, the zero X model is well suited for a fundamentally different type of trading. And, and by that, I mean this idea that the DAP ecosystem is in its infancy, it's gonna keep growing. You're gonna have a situation in the future where you're gonna have whatever your wallet is and you're gonna to wanna to use an application, it will require a token, but you don't want to go to an exchange, pick an order on the books, decide if that's the right price and like make a decision to go in or out, right? It's, it's you just want it to work. So you wanna click a button, have the tokens you need show up in your wallet and then be on your way, right? And that's fundamentally a different customer and a different use case than what we're really focused on, which is more this idea that you're gonna have individuals that want to, for whatever reason, buy a larger amount of the protocol tokens or like, you know, look at it from a different perspective rather than just using the application at a point in time. And in that case, they're going to want a more uh, traditional kind of trading experience with bid ask offers and an, an order book to look at. Um, in terms of how we bootstrap liquidity there, so we've got a couple ideas. We actually, before things started taking off organically, we were working on a, an internal market making bot. It's just we were going to open source to customers, and it was going to be pretty simple. Like you pick a reference price from another exchange, like either their API or if there isn't a reference price, you can enter one, and then it does like cascading bids and, and offers on on either side. Um, we've seen evolution from other teams that are actually building those sort of products. So that's what's something that we're exploring is like partnerships with them where we can actually give tools to customers who are interested in bringing liquidity, but maybe don't have the technical skills or confidence to execute on building something, um, and allow them to actually participate in that. And, that, and that's an example of, you know, you can imagine you trade on IDEX, you stake Aura, you've got capital that you hold in other Ethereum assets, and you'd love to, you know, maybe make a little profit by being a market maker, but also more importantly, help the exchange grow. And so you can actually use one of these tools or applications to kind of do your part. I feel like, I don't know how you think about this, Alex, but I, I definitely have started thinking more about this kind of the decentralized trading world. I mean, firstly, there's the, I wanted to talk about the example about New Zealand really recently. I don't know if you heard about that. The main exchange in New Zealand got hacked uh, a couple hundred thousand ETH, I think it was. Um, but do you ever look at it like there's sort of two evolutions? Uh, there's the professional traders that obviously have the non-custodial approach. Like that's what you kind of cater for right now versus this more marketplace for tokens almost. like as these crypto kitties and stuff like that start coming out and collectibles and stuff, I feel like that doesn't fit the mold of that world, your world as much as like a zero X. And I feel like there's going to be this very splitting path over time. What do you think? Totally agree. And I think that our perspective is reflected in our product design, right? So I mentioned that we, the exchange is a required third signature to make a trade happen, right? That doesn't lend itself very well to a widget on a website. Right. Yep. Um, it works, but it's a little more cumbersome than something like zero X. And so, uh, we are definitely focused on, you know, I, I think our perspective is, uh, the kind of tokenized business models. I find them fascinating. I think people are going to find ones that really work. I think they're kind of in their infancy and you saw, you know, a lot of ideas that were in, in hindsight, not that great. Right. I think the idea of a fee token is pretty much debunked. Um, look at as, my bags. They're here on the floor and they're really heavy. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry. And so, uh, 
you, you know, we kind of look at that ecosystem. I believe it will evolve over time. But what a clear use case to us is just the idea that finance will be tokenized and settlement will be handled via a blockchain. All right. That's something that we just kind of we don't know the timeline. It might be five years, 10 years, probably a little even longer than that. But we we believe fully in that, convi- you know, in, with conviction that in that prediction. And we're really focused on serving that market as best we can, which means making certain decisions and trade offs that uh, kind of make it not as suitable to this open application marketplace use case, but make it better for those who are going to be more kind of financially financially oriented in their approach to trading crypto assets. I suspect this is why you uh, reached the conclusion that you will need to implement some sort of full KYC AML program uh, within IDEX. Um, what are your thoughts around regulation uh, as it pertains to IDEX? So there's actually a bill that was just resubmitted before Congress to exempt non-custodial products such as IDEX from any MSB or KYC AML requirements. We would love to see that go through, right? I mean, that's it's one of those things that it's this interesting paradigm because uh, you can think of IDEX in one way as just an advanced wallet, right? We don't hold any funds. It's a place for you to store your funds and also have all these extra features on top of it, the ability to swap it for other assets, right? And it's not clear where that will fall in terms of regulation. Like there's not, when they wrote those laws, they didn't envision digital bearer financial instruments, right? It's a fundamentally new innovation that doesn't quite fit cleanly into the existing regulation. That said, we're kind of always weighing risk of, of different types. We kind of look at where the industry's going, the decision from Shapeshift to do that. They recently added some wallets to the OFAC sanctions list, some Bitcoin wallets. So it seems that there's going to be some point where, um, you know, they would, they would want to know who's bringing it, who's bringing what through the platform. So we're kind of taking a preemptive step. We see where the broader industry is moving. And even though it's not crystal clear what our requirements are, we're going to be implementing KYC and AML policies. Um, that said, we think this sets us up well for expansion into where we do see uh, an obvious growth path, which is on the more traditional financial instrument side. So if you're doing security tokens, like KYC AML is a necessary but not sufficient component of that process, right? A um, little more nuanced than that, but basically we, we want to take the business that direction anyway. So we're taking steps and, and one of the first ones is KYC AML. I actually think with that, Firstly, I mean, you know, some people, you know, they, they kick up a stink about it, obviously. And, and look, I mean, rightfully so, everyone's different. But if you look at the market in 2013, when FinCEN released their regulatory sort of like, it's okay, just sign with FinCEN, the absolute tsunami, like we've got the market today because so many people got the green light to like run a million miles an hour and like in the right direction. Um, but I think how I... I think that's good and you can structure it and have tiers and whatnot where it doesn't affect everyone maybe just the high volume traders or like otc traders or whatever do you think do you think that is going to make you set up to be more competitive as the other exchanges that are centralized at the moment start deploying a more like non-custodial platform uh i mean you probably know more about them doing that are they doing that or is it more just like zero x relays or something uh, I, I, you know, we see Binance with their decks. That's kind of the most, um, well publicized one. Mm. I'm, I'm curious to see how that evolves. It's, it seems like clear now it's going to be at their own blockchain and it seems they're focused on actually native issuance. So getting projects to recruit and build on Binance chain. 
That said, there's nothing <laughs> about our architecture that couldn't be ported to Binance Chain yep. in the event that Binance Chain also takes off, right? So we really want to be blockchain agnostic, right? That's kind of one of our our tenants. And, and as I mentioned earlier, we see this eventual universe where all of these blockchains connect and all these assets can be traded via smart contract. Um, to your question about uh, kind of where it's where it's going, you know, we think that um, that actually there was some backlash in in particular crypto Twitter, uh, you know, the bastion of intelligent discourse. Actually, it's, I, I really love crypto Twitter. There's, yeah. it's good and bad, right? Some of the, some of the most insightful things are done via uh, Twitter, Twitter storms. Um, but so the, there was a little bit of backlash there, but we actually think long-term is gonna be beneficial because there's number of market makers that we talk to, let's say we would love to get involved in market making on the decks, right? We see opportunities to, arbitrage or you know bring better spreads and, and deeper liquidity but their compliance departments won't allow it unless there is some level of kyc in place right so uh what's what some people like a lot of other people are restricted from participating in without it right and so to your point mike it's kind of this 2013 moment, right? Where if you bring in enough to let them feel comfortable to operate in that environment, you can actually serve a larger segment of the market in the future. It's like a one step back, 10 step forward kind of scenario. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sim simplistically institutions just need to know who's on the other side of the trade, right? Yeah. It's uh, uh, they, they need to know who that person is, make sure it's not uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, <laughs> anyways, Yo, mate. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. We were just texting the other day. Uh, let's talk about competition. Okay. You're, you're building out a financial services stack that's going to be going head to head against a combination of the classic DeFi players. So think Xerox, DYDX, Dharma, uh, uh, MakerDAO. Um, I feel, I feel like developers also kind of like that modular approach because they can pick and choose different components. Whereas if you're making a financial stack, and it's this siloed ecosystem. Uh, it may not be as flexible from developer uh, a developer's point of view. How do you plan to stay uh, competitive uh, holistically? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's the A16Z phrase: the strong opinions loosely held. Right. We think that by having elements of control, we can create a better UX than having uh, some of those things that are kind of cobbled together to have a, a kind of a negative perspective that said the power of having some of those open systems where people can focus on each of their own part of that value proposition and really hone in on how to make it as, as a quality as possible. Like that we believe can lead to some, some additional network effects and we don't want to miss out on those. Right. So I think for the short term, like while all those other pieces of the financial stack are built out, all those other DeFi projects, we're really focused on IDEX, right? That's the piece where we found product market fit. We understand, we think we have a unique perspective on what works, what it takes to give both this non-custodial property and a trading experience that customers want. And so that's where we're really focusing all our attention for the next, you know, call it year or two. At that point, you know, we'll be able to see how progress has been for these other products. You know, they may be integrated in our application by that point, right? Or maybe it's one of those things where we say, hey, you know what? No one's really cracked that nut. We think we can take these learnings we have over here and that we have a unique kind of asset in terms of IDEX that we can use to bootstrap these other products around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are all the um, kind of heavy lifting questions, if you will, on my end. Uh, I just want to talk about uh, what are you looking for on the team? Are you looking to make any hires in, in 2019? Anyone you want to give a shout out to on the podcast? Yeah, so we've actually, most of 2018 was pretty aggressive on the hiring front, and we're actually pretty pretty uh, well-staffed right now. We've got 19 folks 
uh, 10 on the engineering side. So uh, that was a bit of a challenge in early 2018 when uh, engineers that had anything related to blockchain on their application were, were hard to come by. Um, so we've got a great solid team. We're going to be building some more, uh, a few more engineering positions. So anyone who's interested in contributing, definitely reach out. You can find us on social media or we've got a discord as well. Um, and yeah, I think we're really kind of heads down. We've got some new uh, kind of product design elements that I didn't touch on today that we'll reveal here in a few months that we're really excited about and we're kind of heads down focused on building. So, and then some just some simpler things like new UI coming out. Um, so we're, we're really excited about kind of what we've got now and, and where we're going in the future. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Alex. Uh, where can people get in touch with you or learn more about what IDEX is working on? Yeah, so find us on Twitter at Aurora Dow. We've also got a Discord community uh, that would love for you to jump in. Uh, you can find me in there. Feel free to ping me. Uh, would love to talk. One last question. Yep. What keeps you up at night right now? What's the thing like the, this is keeping me up at night? Is it competition, fundraising, or anything like that? Last question. Yeah, uh, I sleep pretty soundly. Um, my man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I think the things that, um, you know, we were talking earlier, we're, we've never taken any outside capital to date, mm -hmm. but we are looking, we're, we're raising around right now. So that's probably the thing I'm thinking about most, like day in and day out, ready to close that and get back to building, right? That's the some more fun of startup, uh, startup life. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Oh, thanks again for joining us. Um, to learn more about Aurora, check out our show notes included in the podcast. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or The Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.